As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Gravity Leadership is a growing network of people who believe the center of the Christian life is the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ, and that learning to take love seriously is vital for how we practice discipleship, mission, and leadership. The Gravity Leadership Podcast explores, in practical ways, how to root our lives and our leadership in this love that holds all of us and everything together. You're listening to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. I'm joined by my friend and uh, patriot, Ben Sternke. Yep. And who are you? I'm Matt, your I don't friend. Think you introduced yourself. I'm yep. your friend mm-hmm. and patriot, Matt Tebby. Yes. These and podcast we, intros, like just parenthetically, I don't know that we've ever like landed. Like it feels to me like professional podcasters. They always have like. Hey, welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. I'm Ben Sternke, your host, and I'm here with my friend, Matt. Matt and then yes. they've got this kind of banter, but we always sort of stumble into the beginning of our podcast. I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily. No, it's part of our aesthetic. Part of <laughs> It really is. Um, it's part of the overall, our overall program oh. of deprofessionalizing Christian there ministry. There it is. It's very intentional. Our unintentional stumbling... I experiment with intros to give permission mm. to our listeners to experiment with whatever you're doing that people will whatever. consume. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, sermons. Sermons, food, dinner. TPS uh, reports. Yep. Uh, dances. Whatever you might be doing. Yeah. So, so anyway, we're today, here. Today we have uh, May Cannon on our mm-hmm. podcast yeah. talking about justice, and she pushes us to get beyond hashtag justice, which is the title of her book. Mm-hmm. What is it? Uh, complicated? Beyond hashtag activism, comprehensive justice yeah. in a complicated age. Yeah. Oof. Good. This was a great conversation. She yeah. she touches on all the biggies that divide Christians right now. It seems mm-hmm. like in the last 10 years, uh, maybe five, it's accelerated, that uh, what constitutes justice and how we achieve it is more divisive than ever. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so I think we need a return to the biblical narrative, and we need a return to putting Jesus at the center of how to understand what is justice, how yeah. do we achieve it, mm-hmm. and how will we know when it's uh, yeah. how will we know when we're living justly, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think May does a great job in this yeah. interview and in her book and in helping us uh, unto that. Yeah, 
Because it, 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 it doesn't fit neatly into the, at least the American categories that we have kind of carved out, you know, the conservative and the liberal and the progressive and the, like those two, the two teams we have kind of lined up. Um, I think if you are following Jesus and seeking justice, you're going to be on the wrong side of uh, both of those, <laughs> both of those ideologies uh, yes. occasionally. And that um, might be a way to tease our upcoming series we got coming out uh, starting yeah, next, next week. Next being week, a Christian in America. Yes, yeah. being a Christian in America. Uh, we haven't we haven't decided on a subtitle for the series, but we could maybe make one up every week. Comprehensive it, Christianity for a complicated time. <laughs> Something like that. Just came just came to me, Ben. Maybe we could yeah. do that. Yeah, maybe, maybe. <laughs> no, Thanks, I think May Cannon. One of the th- one of the things you're naming that makes justice so complicated also makes being a Christian complicated. Yes, and that is our dominant frames to make sense of the world are defined mm. by uh, usually by partisan ideologies yeah. rather than the politics of Jesus. Yep. Yep. And it's hard that, to get out of that when you live oh, in yeah. it every day and you watch the news and you're on social media and you're oh, yeah. and you talk to your neighbors, right? Like if you're going <laughs> to live if you're not going to be a hermit in the desert, um, you're sort of confronted with it every day. It's the water we swim in. Um, and it's hard. It's really hard to not get sucked into it. And so yes. it's, you know, maybe the, maybe the subtitle can be being a Christian in America. It's complicated. Yeah. <laughs> this is a mess. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Can I give it an difficult. anecdote about this and then we can jump into the podcast? Sure. So I'm reading this book by Obrey Hendricks Jr. called mm. The Politics of Jesus. Mm. And he differentiates between political conservatism and moral conservatism. Mm. Uh, two things struck me about that. One is, uh, I don't know if my brain automatically separates those things like he is able to. And two, what he describes as moral conservatism is not at all what comes to mind when I hear those two words together. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. Right? So like uh, in our political world, moral conservatives, uh, people who are conservative morally care about what what are sort of the maybe... Um, caricatures like their sanctity of life, mm-hmm. their uh, pro-life, their m- marriage, marriage and pro-life, right? Those yeah, are that's kind of the, the moral issues, the family the moral values, issues maybe family values, right? Um, but he was describing. Um, I mean, he went. He went. He wants to conserve before 1960. <laughs> so he goes back to actually the Old Testament, mm. and he talks about God's uh, preferential treatment for the poor. Yeah. Uh, Jubilee, yeah, um, being uh, God getting cranked up about injustices to the marginalized and vulnerable, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and He says that's what it means to be morally conservative. Fascinating, conservative which, in which, the truest sense, right? But in our, but in America, those concerns too often get lumped into being a progressive, and so it's and so it's this is just an anecdote, just a, maybe an illustration of why it's such. A dicey, complicated, messy thing to be a Christian in America, yeah. and one is our frames prevent us from actually hearing what the Bible says. <laughs> yes, yes, we can't see it. No, you we know? can't. We're sitting there. We're, we're reading Amos, and we can't even see it. We can't even see it. So, but yeah. May Cannon uh, gets us started. This is almost like a prequel. This is maybe the introduction. This is the unofficial the introduction, introduction to the introduction. Yep. The unofficial introduction to the introduction to our series, which comes next week. Uh, on being a Christian in America.
So enjoy this interview, friends. How to be a uh, Christian. Glad you're with us. So, friends. Uh, <laughs> I think there was a little it. delay there, so we'll see how that washes out in the uh, mix. <laughs> Here's May Cannon. Our guest today on the Gravity Leadership Podcast is Reverend Dr. Mayalise Cannon. She's the Executive Director of Churches for Middle East Peace and an ordained minister in the Evangelical Covenant Church. Reverend Dr. Cannon, welcome to the podcast. It's good to be here, Matt. <laughs> um, we were yes, yeah. I am here too, everybody. <laughs> we were we were chatting. Uh, we, we're going to talk about your book, Beyond Hashtag Activism which I'm mm. just getting into hashtag activism. I'm not ready to go beyond it yet. I just want you to know I'm still, I'm still loving, you so know, pretty just, enamored with it. just sending out tweets and feeling like I've saved the world. Um, but <laughs> your book, the subtitle is comprehensive justice in a complicated age. You know, we work with leaders at gravity leadership who are seeking to ground their leadership and their lives in the love of Jesus. And one of the things we're interested in is taking love from this abstraction or this emotion into a grounded, embodied social reality. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think your book uh, names love as justice, and your book helps us imagine and embody what that looks like. So I'm really excited for you to be here today. Before we get started, is there anything else we need to know about you other than uh, all your credentials? Well, um, and those are, what does Paul say about those, right? <laughs> Not worth much. Um, but uh, as you talk about love as an embodied reality, um, I find that very moving. Um, I'm a leader, uh, kind of first and foremost, um, and a lot of my gifts are not considered traditional pastoral gifts. You know, I have, um, I'm uh, an academic and uh, feelings are very hard for me, you know, so mm. don't ask me how I feel in a few minutes because um, I'm a thinker, that kind of thing. And I always heard, I don't know if you've ever read the book on leadership, The Art of Leadership. Um, where uh, Max Dupree says that the task of a leader is to define reality. Have you heard yes. that? Oh, yeah. Um, and I was mentored by one of the people who Max mentored, um, Nancy Ortberg, and she and I talked about that a lot. And what I came to believe about leadership is actually the heart of a leader or the task of a leader. The first task is not to define reality. It's to love your people. And that if your people know they're loved, then you can define reality. And so as we enter mm. into justice and what, you know, Cornel West says, love is what justice looks like in public. And so yes. as we enter into that, as you talk about embodied love, I'm not very good at it, but I'm passionate and deeply committed. Um, so thank you. I, thank you. Mm. I think that's a great purpose. Yeah. Well, uh, your book then mm. is, a, is like a, a field manual for us. And you cover... Um, you cover a lot of topics in here, poverty, race, gender, politics, sexuality, Middle East, Israel, religious freedom, uh, women. Uh, here's my question. Why, why are all these topics of justice, why are they so divisive? Why are we so divided in areas where we see God working for justice? Because we're broken people. 
Because out of our own brokenness and our own stories and our own loss and experience, I say often pain will come out in some way or another. It'll either come out in a transformation of discipleship towards becoming more and more like the person of Christ, or it will come out in in conflict that's not constructive, or it will come out in divisiveness or, right? So why you know, we as the church who struggle with so many of these topics and issues, they're so divisive because we're so invested in our brokenness in them, which is why we need to enter into the transformational discipleship journey of allowing God to transform our pain. Yes. Ah, that's good. Well, let's start then with with your title. You reference hashtag um, activism. Would you just describe what your what you're sort of pushing us beyond and what is hashtag activism? Well, I laughed, Matt, when you said you're just learning what it means <laughs> to use hashtags because I'm a bit of a neophyte when it comes to social media myself. So irony of ironies that I have a book on hashtags. Um, but, you know, I do think there is a movement um in the United States, but even around the world where we're so much more connected on social media, we're so much more connected via Twitter or Snapchat or these different mechanisms. And we often feel like, oh, this is an issue I care about. So, um, you know, there's a great hashtag that's been trending right now called run with mod about the young man who was 26 years old. Yes. uh, you know, who was brutally killed while out on a jog, an African-American. And um, I don't know how to pronounce his name correctly, Ahmad. Uh, but um, that hashtag is critical because it's calling attention to this injustice of this young man losing his life because of the color of his skin, yeah. right? But if we think that we're becoming, you know, um, anti-racism advocates because we used this hashtag, that that's just not enough. That's a great starting point, um, but that it doesn't holistically address systemic issues the way that we as the church need to. Yeah, that's good. That's uh, it's good. I, I often feel overwhelmed. I mean, I, I referenced all the different topics you cover in your book. And as I read your book, I think, oh, yeah, I should really care about that. And oh, yeah, poverty. Oh, my gosh. I'm I'm an affluent white Christian in a impoverished world. And uh, oh, yeah, me too. The, uh, the uh, women and, and leadership and, and not and having the ceiling of like patriarchy. I, I sometimes just feel overwhelmed. Like there's too many things for my tiny little heart to care about. And so then the hash, yeah. the hashtag is like, well, I can at least do that. Um, and I wonder maybe how have you, maybe tell us a bit of your story. Like how, hmm. where have you found, how, how did you come to care so much about justice? Hmm. Um, well, just a comment about the feeling overwhelmed. Um, this book was in some ways the 10th anniversary of my first book that was called social justice handbook. Hmm. Um, but the subtitle. Oh, yeah is why I'm bringing it up. The subtitle of that book was Small Steps for a Better World. And I think one of the ways that we cannot be overwhelmed is first and foremost to have the humility of knowing whatever these issues are, they're not too big for God, that mm. God can hold them all. We need not, yes. <laughs> right? Um, but the other thing is to know that God chooses to use his people in when we pray thy kingdom come, that we have the great privilege, you know, as followers of Jesus, of being a small part of, you know, um, watering seeds and allowing God to make them grow. And so I hope in some ways that helps us to not be overwhelmed. 
Um, you know, in terms of my story, I don't think of myself. Um, I don't think of myself as a very successful justice advocate. I think of myself as a lover of Jesus who's incredibly broken. And if that brokenness can be used in some ways to be transformative, my prayer is may it be so. Mm. Um, but I have had the great, great privilege of people investing in my life who are from marginalized communities. And so I grew up in rural Southern Maryland, south of the Mason-Dixon line. When I'm in Culvert County, I can put on my little twang and talk all Southern because that's how we talk where I'm from. <laughs> and um, the community was incredibly divided uh, between whites and African-Americans. And from mm. the time I was in you know, third grade or something like that, even before then, even the time I was in preschool, I had encounters um, with African Americans who invested in my life. And I feel like I was given little pieces of their story to steward, um, or that at least were transformative to me. And so in that regard, um, I'm so, so incredibly privileged because of the proximity I have had to communities that are marginalized, uh, yeah. being from the South, you know, and then, of course, in continued ministry in years later. Yeah. yeah I think the, um, uh, the thing I'm noticing there is that your personal experience helped to transcend some, you know, it's it's not just a an issue or a video you saw and got upset about. Um, it's not just an issue that you want to be on the right side of. Uh, for you, this uh, because of how you grew up, it actually represents relationships. It represents, it, it's real people. It's not just the. It's not just an issue or or a hashtag, if you will. <laughs> you know, right. that's that seems to make a, a ton of difference. That's right. And, you know, because I'm a thinker, I think about things and issues. And mm -hmm. friends of mine who are a part of, you know, broader justice movements uh, remind me all the time, you know, to not even, even the term issues can help us feel like we're far away from the people who are the most affected. Yes, um, right. By these realities. And so I think that's a great reminder. And in that regard, I fundamentally believe one of the number one things we can do if we want to become justice advocates is to be in relationship with people who are hurting. Yes. And so it doesn't matter if it's people in prison or if it's people who are suffering from homelessness or the elderly who are so isolated right now, you know, in um, nursing homes. Um, yeah. But that when we love people, I mean, this goes back to the very heart of what you were talking about in terms of leadership. When we love people, we care about them when they're hurting and we care about the things that affect their lives. Yes. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on, May, is because I think that your book gives us handholds on how to love. And and, and, it, and it's contentious right now, right? Because, um, for instance, you bring some definition and some understanding to buzzwords that are uh, divisive words. Speaking of like the race issue, so words like um, critical race theory and intersectionality. Uh, these these words are either um, and people have strong feelings about whether Christians should even think in terms of intersectionality or critical race theory. Would you do us Would you do us a favor? Would you define what those two things are, and then how you as a Christian interact with them? Yes. Um, and before I do, I just would step back a little bit and say, I think part of 
justice being manifested in a comprehensive theology has to hold a couple of things in tension. Um, And this gets to the question of what's intersectionality and what's critical race theory, that often we politicize what we think about different issues. So I'll use the issue of gun control first, because it's a little bit clearer than race. Race is much more, you know, um, embedded systemic, you know, complex. But, you know, should we as Christians um, support uh, more strict gun laws, or should, as many conservative Christians believe, you know, the constitutional right to bear arms. You know, I, I have spent a lot of time in Colorado and lived in Colorado where there were sanctuary cities that weren't sanctuary cities for immigrants. They were sanctuary cities for gun laws that were supported by the Christian communities there. Oh, okay. I, I'm not even making that up, Matt. If people could see I, I, believe, I, I believe it. I just, um, <laughs> I, I, it seems like there's, there sanctuary cities are from Deuteronomy. Uh, and I don't think Deuteronomy was talking about places you could have bazookas. But, uh, I, you know, it's an interesting word right? choice for Christians yeah. to use to describe places that are safe for guns rather yeah. than people. Right. <laughs> right. So the reason I'm using this analogy is... Um, I think we as the body of Christ have got to learn how to disagree constructively. We talk about reconciliation and, you know, the reconciliation ministry of the gospel. And I will get to race, I promise. I know I'm taking a long time to get there. But but what does it mean, you know, when the hand suffers, the whole body suffers? Or what about when the hand thinks one thing and the foot thinks another? How do we reconcile that? And there has to be place for this constructively working through. One of the things this book talks about a lot is we may agree on a problem. We may agree this is a problem and then have completely different ideas about what we think the solution should be. And so how do we maintain as the body of Christ the ability to um, uh, uphold justice, but respect one another, have discourse? And then the other side of that, if you could see me, I'm using my hands, you know, the one side is this um, constructive conflict reconciliation. The other side is how do we not compromise on truths? And how do we not compromise on prophetic advocacy? And how do we not compromise on human rights and equality and justice, which I think the prophets of the Old Testament are all about? Yes. And, and when we wrestle with these issues, often people politicize one or we spend a lot of time on one side of the spectrum and not the other without mm. holding those things in tension, which brings me, I'm sorry, I know it took me a long time to get here, but intersectionality is the idea that any issue of injustice or any issue, you know, be it um, racism or any issue of oppression, they are connected to one another because they are a part of the same system. So mm. when we look at oppressed people groups, the core principles of oppression, the core principles of systemic injustice, they're not different depending on different justice issues. They're intersectional. They're connected to one another. And so that's what intersectionality is. And critical race theory, I'm going to have to look it up, Matt, in terms of giving <laughs> definition. Um you know, but critical race theory in terms of what we understand about the construction of whiteness, part yeah. of the idea is that our entire system in the United States has elevated whiteness and put it at the center of the way that we understand society. Yeah. So even the idea of people of color, people of color is identifying minority groups, many that are um 
increasingly becoming non-minorities in different communities, but it's centering whiteness at the mm-hmm. very identity of what's normal, of what's privileged, you know, and so part of what we need to deconstruct in critical race theory is um, where does even the construct of whiteness come from and mm-hmm. how can we decenter it and give up white privilege, which is so prevalent and continues to exist even in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, I'm yeah. I'm amening silently so I don't interrupt you. Um, but yeah, I mean it's it's interesting that uh, saying the words "person of color" are never referring to white people in America. And right. that's an, even though in, we're a shade of color. Well, I think white is a color. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, but but it's um, but it's it's one of ten thousand artifacts. Yeah. Well, and I think part of what I mean in terms of people of color is I think some people would say white is a neutral color or white is, you know, white is the ideal that is esteemed, you know, historically in our Mm -hmm. uh, you know, history in the United States. But instead of looking at someone, you know, it's beautiful. And I'd encourage you, we wrote about this. um, And there's a chapter in the book that came out in the fall, Evangelical Theologies of Liberation and Justice. It's an academic book. There's a chapter by Robert Chow Romero, that's called the Brown Church. Hmm. And the Brown Church is talking about the Hispanic Church and the Latin American Church. And calling the church the Brown Church is not centering whiteness, because right. we're not saying, look, you don't have a color, right? Or you are mm. a color, <laughs> but we're calling and identifying the heart of that community, which is brown-skinned people. Yes. Yeah. That's really good. I, um, I wonder, as you, as you wrote these chapters in this book, and I, I mentioned them earlier, poverty, race, gender, politics, sexuality, Middle East, Israel, which one was the most difficult for you? Which one, um, maybe which one did you have the, not not in terms of actually putting words to paper, but where you find yourself the most conflicted or the most complicated how to navigate? Yeah, so um, this book came to fruition. Um, I, I remember the moment I was lying in bed. It was December 2018. And I felt like my soul demanded that this book be written. I oh. dropped the note that night to my editor at InterVarsity Press, and I don't remember the exact numbers, but I think I was in contract within less than two weeks. I mean, it was oh, wow. just, um, and then I ended up having a family crisis, but the book was written in three months or something like that. I mean, it just, it, it was, my soul needed to be put on paper. And so in that regard, the impetus and part of where that came from was, you know, sitting beside friends. Um, I have a, a a friend who's a part of my community. I think I even write about this in the book, who's a woman of color, whose son is African-American. And when she heard President Trump was elected, she wept. Mm-hmm. And I didn't understand. So this gets to one of the the issues that was really hard for me to write about was the politics of it. How does this manifest itself in Washington, D.C.? Right. Um, And so that was hard to write about. And I have dear friends in this administration who are people who love Jesus and believe that they are making the world a better place. And as it relates to U.S. policies towards the Middle East, they're horrific. The policies are so detrimental in terms of the effects that they're having on people actually living in the Middle East. But Mm. the people behind them are really good-hearted people who love Jesus, who just don't know anyone in the Middle East, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, so that was one issue that was really tough. And then the other one, um, which I'm sure is not a surprise, was the conversation on theology around inclusivity with the LGBTQ plus community. Yeah. Um, I'd never studied it before. So my public perspective has always been, regardless of your theology or how you read the scriptures, the way the church has treated members of that community has been horrific. And so we should start, forgive us, confessions of a compromised faith. We should start by repenting of that. Mm. Um, But I wrestled a lot with the theology, what the scriptures teach, but then also the manifestation of different theologies, you know, as you delve into Mm. that chapter. That was really, really tough. This podcast is brought to you by Gravity Leadership Academy, our 10-month online training intensive for Christian leaders who want to root their life and leadership in God's love and bring lasting transformation to their culture. In Gravity Leadership Academy, you'll learn the real-life practicalities of how to notice God's presence and activity in and around you so you can participate more fully in God's life and mission and open up space for those around you to do so too. We've worked really hard to make this training in missional leadership practical and doable. To find out more about Gravity Leadership Academy, visit gravityleadership.com slash academy. You mentioned earlier, how do we have conversations about things that we disagree on with charity and solidarity for, for truth and for each other. And I, I think that often, maybe one of the detriments of hashtag activism is that there isn't a relational commitment. There's not solidarity with actual people. And so we're just throwing 140 characters at each other. And whoever yeah. whoever yeah. zings the best wins. Yeah. Um, and that kind of forms and shapes our, our social politic, yeah? I think that's right. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, I think there are many, many issues that 140 characters are inadequate at addressing. <laughs> you know, the core Wait. components of, you know, what's this that's chapter a, in Leviticus mean? Let's work that's it a out. Controversial <laughs> take. <laughs> Just kidding. That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. So let's let's stay with politics then. Mm. Um, and you mentioned this, like you realizing there's some good genuine authentic pure people who who are fully convinced in their minds that they are doing the lord's work but you're on a you're you're coming from a different perspective looking at different data than they are perhaps and you're seeing like this is not the lord revealed in jesus's work well like whatever work this is it's it's way more complicated than they know it like and i know you spent some time in dc uh working around people probably in both parties who are Christians and, and hat. So what are some of the things you learned about navigating the public square as a Mm. person of faith? What are some of the Mm. things that you learned as you were there? Well, um, one of the things I think is the most significant for the church of the 21st century is that we can't afford to say the church should not be political. And the church, regardless of if it says it's political or not, I promise you, it's political, (laughs) right? So even just going back to what's the definition of politics, it's just how we engage within society, 
And, um, you know, the if you look at the history of politics, the history of the rise of the new right and the rise of conservatism under Reagan and Bush and the association of the church and Christians with republicanism. And -hmm. and we see that manifested under the Trump administration. You know, the majority of white evangelicals who voted voted for President Trump and many of them voted for him on two issues. They voted for him on the issue of the Supreme Court specifically because of the issue of abortion, mm-hmm. or they voted on the issue of the death penalty, being in favor of it, you know, and his protection of that. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, to be able to start to deconstruct and to say, you know, I am someone who believes in the inherent right of a human embryo to life. Um, and I also think that we shouldn't mandate morality. And so it gets quite complex when we talk about laws and legislation around that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, to vote for someone or to put into practice in politics through the action of voting based on one singular issue might not be having a comprehensive perspective of you know, the power at play yes. uh, you know, in terms of our elected officials. Yeah. And that is a political perspective, right? To, to, to say that we don't have a political perspective or we're going to keep politics out of the church is just naive. That's because right. if if politics, uh, I can't remember exactly how you said it. It was it was like how we engage in society or how we yeah. yeah. So we you know society is just people who live together, right? So you can't avoid it. Like the church has politics inside the church. We have to engage with the politics of what it means to live in a neighborhood, what it means to live in a state, what it means to live in a country, and so it's an unavoidable. You can't just not talk about it because by not talking about how we engage with each other, you end up defaulting to the status quo, which is not good right now. <laughs> like the status quo, you know what I mean? Like, there, I mean, and I think no matter where you fall in the political spectrum and who you voted for and all that kind of stuff, I think we can all agree that there's like bad stuff happening right now and that, you know, things could get better. And so anyway. I, and and um, just if I may, Ben, you know, t- to jump in, you know, yes. I, I'm getting all excited now. You're getting me riled up. That's but, good. Go, 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 know, go. The best podcast when we just <laughs> we get all we get all excited together. Go ahead. You know, I, I I've been talking about some of my frustrations with this current administration in Washington D.C. I have equal frustrations with Protestant liberals who care deeply about justice issues and are just as recalcitrant about their red lines. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I get identified all the time as, oh, you know, she's a progressive. I'm like, oh my gosh, have you met me? Like, I'm not a progressive on the spectrum of, you know, um, theologically, I'm not progressive, uh, you know, per se, but I care about people and I care about social issues. Stop labeling me as progressive because I care about people, right? And I'm not saying that because progressive is a bad word. I work with a lot of progressives, but the the challenges we're identifying in terms of this division, they don't only exist on the side of conservatism or republicanism. They yeah. totally exist within people who self-identify as Democrat or, you know, self-identify as um, yeah. progressive evangelicals or, yeah. you know, whatever their labels are. And the labeling is the problem. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. It, it's, it's, a uh, it's maddening. <laughs> it's a maddening problem. Because it, it feels like you're up against, it feels like we're not talking about the same thing so often. Like we're talking past each other so often. If we try to, if we try to maintain a Christian perspective and ethic and politic in the world, yeah. it so often gets dismissed because what people are seeing, I feel like the hegemony 
of the way that we see the world as you know conservative versus progressive that that's so hege- hegemonic I think that's the word. That's so but like pervasive. Let me just yeah. affirm you for that word. It's a good word. Thank yeah. you. Good Thank job, you. Ben. I don't. I'm not often <laughs> affirmed for my big words. I'm oftentimes uh, uh, yeah. side-eyed, castigated. No, anyway. But it, <laughs> my point is, my point is, it's a difficult, thorny issue because because it's so often, you know, if you say a trigger word like "Hey, cr- critical race theory," critical race theory, or whatever you get labeled and dismissed and then we can't have a conversation. We can't actually talk about the thing we need to talk about. That's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. And even may, as you describe the landscape of what it means to be conservative or progressive, you know, it is, those words are defined more by a political spectrum in America than by uh, scripture. Mm-hmm. Right? right. Like right. if like a socialist, like Bernie Sanders, if he were to run for office with the plat, I, I called him a socialist. Uh, he's not. He's a democratic. Uh, yeah, he's a democrat. Uh, but like, if he were to run for office and he were to say, every two generations, all the land and the wealth goes back to people it was taken from the last forty nine years, <laughs> like he would be run. Uh, there's no way he'd be run out of America, L- like off the spectrum, liberal and progressive, like the worst socialist ever. But that's one of the most conservative uh, views of economics we have, because it's like this ancient biblical principle, right? And so we can't even think biblically. Here's my frustration. I have such a hard time thinking biblically, and more importantly, Christocentrically, Mm. about justice, because I notice that my frames for how to understand that keep getting hijacked by something that's not from Scripture, so I'm, I'm mm-hmm. trying to, so, you know, I'm kind of, I'm uh, to borrow a phrase. I'm constantly trying to code switch between, okay, no, 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 that's not conservative. That's actually like when Jesus is like, uh, you know, uh, like declaring forgiveness for for sinners. Like that's a that's a deeply scandalous thing to conservative people. So they saw it as like this libertine whatever, but today that, you know, it's like you have to Mm. constantly figure out what frame of justice am I using? And that's what makes it hard for me because I, Mm. it's hard to enter into any conversation where, where it's not immediately co-opted by the prevailing political partisan spectrum. All right. Rant over. (laughs) That's right. That's right. And I would point people to Leviticus 25. So everything that you talked about in terms of the year of Jubilee and a vision of debts being forgiven and prisoners set free, that's where that comes from. Mm. Um, And, you know, I think you're totally right. I mean, let's be really honest. Even our English translations of the scripture have put us at a deficit in terms of understanding um, a holistic Christology of justice. So mm-hmm. I don't have time to go through the Bible study of the Hebrew and the Greek, but in the Old Testament, there's two Hebrew words, righteousness and justice, mishpat right. and tzaddik, hundreds of times. They are inseparable. Justice and righteousness are the foundation of God's throne. We see it throughout the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the Koine Greek has a limitation or it's um, a bit more uh, developed where the the Greek word is dikaios or dikaiosune. It's one word that means both. And Mm. in our English translations of scripture, the word appears more than a hundred times. It is only traditionally translated as justice once. 
Hmm. in the book of Philemon or Philemon, however you pronounce the name of that book. Um, and so even when we look at, you know, the Sermon of, on the Mount in terms of Jesus's, you know, most profound sermon, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for dikaios. Mm-hmm. And we understand that as righteousness. And yet what Jesus meant and what the word means and what the yeah. scriptures teach is, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and justice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I had a friend just to put just to put an exclamation point on what you said. I had a friend who said, as a discipline, uh, as a discipline in devotional reading, start start reading every word righteous or righteousness as justice, and just see what that opens up for you in the New Testament. And I think that attests to what you're saying. It it shifts and opens up our imagination because righteousness to me. I mean, I know what it means, right? You and I, May and Ben, we've all preached sermons on righteousness and we could define it because we have, you know, master's degrees and doctorates and whatever. But it's it's this it 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 often gets abstracted as a like, theological thing. Maybe it's imputed onto our account, or those kinds of stuff. Whereas justice is never abstract hmm. in scripture. Like justice is this tangible, on the ground, concrete uh yeah. thing that's happening yeah. between people. And, right. and in systems, right? Justice yeah. is stop stop taking advantage of your workers, pay them their full wage. You know, I mean, it's like a there's a there's a very concrete. Whereas I think oftentimes we read righteousness, and you know, I, I'm just thinking about how did I think about righteousness kind of growing up. Um, I think I thought about it as like morality, like personal, like being a good person. And there's nothing wrong with being a good person. It's better than being an evil one. Amen. But uh, you know what I mean? Amen. But you know what I mean? Like it's primarily this internal thing. It's primarily about me and like, maybe I shouldn't, you know, maybe I should learn how to be more honest and maybe I should, you know, that kind of thing, which is all, it's all wonderful stuff. But I think, I think that's primarily what it, what it was, how it was thought about or, and, or it was thought about like, like you said, Matt, where it was like, it's almost like this abstract thing as, as you learned about what does justification by faith mean? Well, it's like yeah. righteousness is imputed to my account. It's almost like insurance where it's like, I hope I never need to use it, but I, I'm glad I have it. I think, I think I have it. You know what I mean? Like, we'll see if I get a hit by a hailstorm, then I'll find out if I have insurance. Uh, but righteousness almost feels as unreal as that sometimes. It's like, mm. it's this thing I have in my account with God. Mm-hmm. So that's good, you know, but it, it doesn't actually live out in any way. And, and I think part of what's so powerful is that it's not that we want to throw righteousness out with you know, the baby exactly. with the bathwater, exactly. right? We want to pursue purity and Christ-likeness and mm-hmm. intimacy with God and right behavior and right living and be good people because God calls us to, right? Yeah. To follow yeah. in the image of Christ. But righteousness allows us to be isolationists if it's not transformative. That righteousness mm. should transform us to living differently with our neighbor. Mm-hmm. And so that's why righteousness and justice, they, they are the foundation of God's throne. They yeah. are not separate from one another, yeah. but need to be integrated. That's a great way to put it. We we have an axiom that we use a lot in our training, um, kind of a set of theological foundational kind of truths that we uh, affirm kind of at the initial part of our training. And one of them is that whatever God does through you, he also does in you. And this, and vice versa, whatever he does in you, he also does through you. And so there's this coherence, there's this integrity between the person I'm becoming and, and the justice that flows from my person. You know what I mean? That the justice that's being accomplished through me will also be justice that is accomplished within me. Uh, reconciliation and peace and righteousness and justice, they all kind of flow together. 
Um, and so I, I'd, I'd never, um, I don't know, I've never thought about that in terms of those, those two Hebrew words kind of being combined into that one Greek word and how that maybe has affected the way that we've been thinking about it. So mm-hmm. that's really, that's really been great for helpful. You mentioned in this book, May, a lot of on the ground initiatives and activism that's happening with uh, in different sectors of uh, America and around the world. Could you share maybe one or two ways that um, God's people are bringing or making or participating in God's justice that you're particularly excited about or you feel like have pregnant hope for launching a, a more robust imagination for how to work for justice? Hmm. Sure. Um, I just had the privilege this morning at Churches for Middle East Peace. We've been in the middle of an Easter Tide series. Easter Tide is the period between Easter, Resurrection Sunday, and Pentecost. And we've been interviewing um, Christian leaders from the Middle East. And this morning, the person I had a conversation with was His Eminence Archbishop Angelos of the Coptic Orthodox Church. Oh. And People who don't know, Coptic is the Egyptian Orthodox Church. They have their own pope, uh, His Holiness Teodros, who's based uh, out of Egypt. And you would think, you know, I'm speaking to his eminence. I mean, and he's been awarded all kinds of awards from like Queen Elizabeth. And, you know, I mean, he's a global religious leader. Mm. And he started speaking about the gospel um, about the gospel and the power of Christ transforming the brokenness in the world. And I'm a bit embarrassed. So here I'm telling you my embarrassing story. And I just got all choked up. I mean, I like I had snot coming out of my head. <laughs> like, I was like, I mean, and this is on video, right? So here I'm telling you about it. But I got all choked up because of, um, you know, we talk about the transforming power of the gospel. And yet the truth of it is, the pain in the world is not too big for God. And Mm. the good news is something that sustains us when we're in pain and sustains us when, you know, when there are people who are hungry, who don't have food. And, um, and, you know, we talked about being overwhelmed about the justice issues of the world and they are too big for us. That is true, but they are not too big for God. You know, and so I look at the church in the Middle East as one of the places where you say, where is their hope or where do you see God moving? And, you know, Archbishop Angelos this morning told the story of the 21 Coptic uh, young men who were assassinated on the beach um, in North Africa and about their witness. And I never knew this until I heard the story from him. But if you watch the, the actual video of their killings, When the video goes black, it continues to record and you can hear them in their very last words calling on the name of Jesus. And, you know, I'm not trying to, I mean, most of us, if not all of us, the Lord willing will not suffer martyrdom, you know, and yet um, that's how profound this gospel that we profess is, that it sustains us even when, um, even when the brokenness of the world uh, seems like it's winning the day, that that's the end of the story even when it's doing its worst yeah Mm. wow well maybe maybe to close um you've been so generous with your time and this has been such a fun conversation uh i i wonder you haven't you didn't write this book for policymakers in dc and you didn't write this book as a as an academic uh theology of justice although there's some really good robust stuff in the beginning but you wrote it for pastors and Christians of churches so they could enter into just making work. 
um, and and not just simply uh, get cranked up at 10 p.m. on Facebook because great aunt shared an article that you can't believe she believes and you can't sleep at night. Like, <laughs> how do you actually, how do you actually, so what would you, like, what would you commend to us? If we're, mm. our hearts are stirred, where would we begin to put our hands to the plow? Mm. Well, for pastors and church leaders, I know that the tasks before us, you know, I've, I've been in that role in the local church. It's too much. There are too many issues to address. There's too many needs. There's too many people who are sick, too many visits. And I think first and foremost, to be able to let that go and to just say, God, I'm here. What would you have me God, I'm here and all of this is yours, mm. right? So the humility of knowing that we don't need to be the one to solve all of these problems because we won't. <laughs> and that we don't need, you know, a, a friend of mine and colleague, Eugene Cho, wrote this book. Um, do you know the name of his book? It, it's all about the world is not ours to save. Mm. Um, no, that's not the title of it. Um, yeah, I know what you're talking about. I, I can't remember the name of the book, though. Um, yeah. The main idea of it is that for pastors and leaders, like stop with this pressure that we put on ourselves that mm. we need to address every issue. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Often what I say to people is each of us individually, each of our communities, and I believe each of our church bodies, God has a unique call on our life. Mm. And our job is to be obedient to it. And for some of us, it will be mm. responding to poverty you know, in sub-Saharan Africa. And for some of us, it'll be, you know, being in local prisons. And for some of us, it's going to be taking care of, you know, my 94 year old neighbor named Alba, who, um, you know, doesn't have that much longer on this earth, but for her to know she's not alone. Hmm. And so what's it mean for us to be faithful as individuals, but also corporately as a community to hmm. that, which God has called us to do. Hmm. And then we're promised he will give us what we need to stand up under it. Hmm. May as a, as a pastor, thank you so much for not telling me to take responsibility for everything and become busier than I am. Mm. Um, it's, it's, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and what I heard you say, and I'll, and tell me if I'm wrong, but I received this. It's, it's um, confess that God got, that God's kingdom is coming, that the gates of hell will not prevail against uh, what he's doing in the world mm. and to be open and responsive when uh, he brings things to you to your front door uh, and to your neighborhood, uh, to your inbox that you can act on. Mm. Yeah. May it be so. Amen. May it be so. Whew. Wow. Um, overrated. Yeah, Ben, you had way. something? Overrated. I think that's the name of the book. Gene Cho's book, Overrated. overrated. Oh. Are we more in love <laughs> with the idea of changing the world than actually changing the world? I thought it? you meant the good Reverend Doctor's advice, and I was like, "That is not overrated. <laughs> this is exactly what I needed to now, hear." Now we're going to have a fight. <laughs> I, thought we, oh my I thought we were all on board here. I thought this was good. Uh, no, oh it's goodness. Advice. No, I was, I was getting ready to fight, overrated. Ben. I was getting yeah. ready to fight you. Okay. Um, hey, before, as as we go, would you just tell us more about? You're the executive director of Churches for Middle East Peace. If there was like one thing in the world that people have the least amount of hope for, is that there can be peace in the Middle East. Um, you know, that's one. That's like a joke, right? It's like a punchline to jokes. But uh, what do you? Can you just maybe in sixty seconds? What is what is this organization, and what is the work that you do? 
Sure. So Churches for Middle East Peace, we call it CMEP, C-M-E-P. And the website has wonderful resources for individuals and churches. The goal of the organization is to educate the American church so that we constructively contribute towards peace in the Middle East. Mm. And that relates to Israel, it relates to the Palestinian territories and that conflict, but it moves beyond, you know, to Egypt, Iraq, Lebanon. Um, the Christian community in the Middle East has been there since the time of Pentecost. Yeah. And the Western church in large part has neglected to walk alongside of our brothers and sisters in Christ in the Middle East. And so our organization seeks to educate, elevate, and advocate by raising awareness about the realities of conflicts in the Middle East, mm. and then to provide opportunities for Christians to constructively engage. So needed. Yes. So needed. Thank you so much, Reverend Dr. May Elise Cannon, for being with us today. The book, again, is called Beyond Hashtag Activism, Comprehensive Justice in a Complicated Age. Would you give us how to find you online, all the various uh, avenues and addresses? Sure. Um, well, I'd like to be better at hashtags, but I am on Twitter. <laughs> so um, it's just at mayalisecannon.com, M-A-E, Elise Cannon. And then I have a website, uh, maycannon.com. And I've just started a podcast that's called Hashtag Activism mm. that's been addressing um, some of the hot topics you know, that are hitting Twitter today from COVID-19 to, I don't know if you've heard of the hashtag decarceration, mm. you know, talking no. about prisons are affected right now um, because 70 plus percent of those who are behind bars have been infected with COVID-19. Um, wow. So I'd point people to the hashtag activism podcast as well. Great. Yeah. Links to all that in the show notes if you're curious uh, to find all that. May, thank you so much for being with us. Good to be with you both. Thanks for having me. Peace. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Our show is produced by Ben Sternke, Matt Tebby, and Ben Hardman. Aaron Sternke does our mixing and mastering. You can check out his work at aaronsternke.com. If you find our podcast helpful, share it with your friends in person and on social media. And don't forget to rate and review us online as well as subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can join our Gravity community for free at gravityleadership.com join you'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com join. And hey, we'd love to hear from you. Ask a question, make a comment, send us an idea, a recommendation, recipe, whatever. You can email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.